Riley Williams is a 22-year-old woman charged with the theft of Nancy Pelosi's laptop. She has recently been released from jail into her mother's custody and is required to wear an ankle monitor, only leaving home for work and court appearances. How do you find love mid-pandemic, under house arrest, and without using the internet? Riley thought there was an international Zionist conspiracy to undermine the national sovereignty of the United States. But she's about to discover that they can't replace your heart. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memes as Politics. I'm your host, Joshua Citarella. This show is a monthly recap of events in the overlapping spheres of radical politics and mimetic subcultures. If this is your first time joining us, go back to episode 12. (laughs) We hit the ground running in this one. If you need a crash course, go back to episode 12. I just finished 60 Days in Shadow Ban on Instagram. Uh, I seem to have been let out of my cage, which is vastly preferable to reaching 1% of my audience. It's curious because around that time, we've talked numbers excessively on this channel, so I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, but I was reaching approximately 1% of my audience for a period of, of 60 days. And on March 1st, The day I signed up for Twitter, I technically had a Twitter, but the first day I tweeted in my entire adult life, also the day that Brad Trammell made a Discord, we both mysteriously got out of shadow ban, like immediately, (laughs) like midnight on March 1st, my story views went from like 300 to 2000 or something like that. Really, really sizable. Order of magnitude almost an order of magnitude. So it was really noticeable. I was very financially stressed for a while because I earned my living through my visibility on social media. And my understanding of this is that essentially my wages were docked from Instagram because I work for Instagram. I think that's undeniable. My wages were docked for misbehaving on the job. I think that's an accurate description of what happened. Almost immediately after that, My traffic on my page dropped really, really rapidly. Um, I shared a few posts from Baz Fisher Invitational, where uh, up until a few days ago, we are recording on March 15th. And on March 12th, that was the last day of the exhibition. You know, opening opening a solo show in Shadowban and launching a book, uh, <laughs> I certainly I certainly noticed the the decrease in traffic. Having to spend a year of creative labor on these projects, and then nobody can hear about it. So, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, I don't have to go back underground. We're going to approach this stream a little bit casually. I have a number of topics to talk about for the first thirty minutes in the. Later 30 minutes, I'm going to present a work-in-progress piece that I've been workshopping for a little while. So where are we? Let's, um, a a quick two-minute diversion here. I was going to do a whole bit about uh, Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head, and (laughs) I basically saw a few memes about this and got uh, really worked up. And then I Google searched it, and they basically just renamed the company I was thinking, though, that what was radical about Potato Head, as it's now known, and I remember doing this as a kid, right, because I'm a millennial, millennial, technically born 1980, so Kim Kardashian is a millennial, but I think a good operating definition of millennial is anyone who grew up with social media. That's really mostly what we mean when we say that term. The radical subversive potential of Mr. Potato Head was that you could literally and metaphorically disassemble the signifiers associated with gender. You could take off the mustache from Mr., you could take off the lipstick from Mrs., and then you would realize how these things were socially constructed. Like, it was already implicit in the toy. 
the renaming seems a bit a bit redundant, I guess, really, really heavy-handed. Let's do a quick rundown of the topics for tonight's show. Free speech is over, if you want it. Kids in cages and alternate realities taking shape online. Right-wing influencers stay consistent, hashtag super straight, and actually existing gamer socialism. I promise that one will not disappoint. Let's begin with our first topic for tonight. There's been a series of edgy tweets from left-wing figures, popular figures in the left-wing media, and uh, a general question that we like to talk about on this channel. Can we, as the left, use irony if the right has successfully used it to slip really insane, radical extreme stuff under the radar? What are the ins and outs of that? How do you contour this fine line between humor, between irresponsible platforming, all of these types of things? And we've got two, two instances in the last month to provide a little bit of a case study. So maybe we can dive into some of those tonight. The first example, Matt Brunig tweeted a picture of <laughs> Xi Jinping sprinkling coronavirus across the globe. So like the Salt Bay character, he's just sprinkling little COVID particles, what have you. To me, this is extraordinarily hilarious. My general feeling is that I don't think anyone, anyone who wields significant influence really thinks that COVID is a bioweapon. I do actually know people who think about that, who believe that story, but I don't think it's a consensus. I don't think anyone who has particular sway on public opinion feels that way. So for me, this is an area that is more or less okay to make jokes about. A little bit of background on Matt Brunig. He is, I believe, infamous on Twitter for getting in a flame war with Neera Tandon and getting fired from his jobs. What is most interesting, and I believe is uh, worth considering here, is that he is the first example of a crowdfunded think tank called the People's Policy Project, which uh, exists on Patreon. And he writes a bunch of policy papers that were adopted by various candidates, uh, consulted with the Bernie campaign in 2020. So um, I, I believe there's a lot of opportunity in that model. And whatever happens, I, I do not want <laughs> a level of shitposting that endangers that very valuable project. So I, I very much admire his work. He was also a serious shitposter back in the day like really just unhinged stuff like reposting ISIS memes and just incredible like insane shit. But so the, the question naturally arises, if the account does not frequently post these types of things, does that potential of decontextualization endanger the very valuable project? It's a liability to have that kind of a platform. Let's take that meme, for example. I'm borrowing this from Margot in the Discord. If intellectuals posted that, absolutely hilarious. Like the meme itself cracks me up. That that's no problem, right? Intellectuals, you come to that account and they're always posting unhinged, crazy, hilarious stuff. So uh, really, no conflict, no project to endanger. The other major case study to talk about is Nathan J. Robinson, who is the founder of Current Affairs Magazine, and he was recently let go, uh, really fired from The Guardian, for a not-so-funny tweet. Uh, this one is not as easy to defend because it's not as funny. <laughs> Let me pull it up on the screen here. Yeah, so I feel like if you're making cancelable, edgy tweets, you know, you really do have to have to be very funny with them. And it is something different when people are not used to hearing this material from that account. That certainly um, adds a layer of potential decontextualization to context collapse, to pose law, as Dylan is saying in the chat. Thank you for that reference. The tweet from Nathan J. Robinson reads, Do you know that the U.S. Congress is actually not permitted to authorize any new spending unless a portion of it is directed toward buying weapons for Israel? It's the law. <laughs> and he follows that up with, or if not actually the written law, then so ingrained in political custom as to functionally be indistinguishable from law. It's interesting. It's interesting because um, 
It reminds me of a piece I've been wanting to do on the show for quite a while. Let me pull up my notes here. I'm calling this segment The Greatest Crimes of the State of Israel Ranked. Let's start somewhere in the middle here. Okay, number 5,432. There is, there is a lot to be debated, and um, my feeling on the issue is that because he deleted the tweet, then that should have been the end of it. I think when people self-censor and they realize that they maybe potentially crossed a line, that there has to be some type of reconciliation about this. <laughs> this, is, this is really rich, though. There's an old, <laughs> people dug this one up. There's an old tweet from uh, Nathan Robinson, and I certainly feel his pain right now. It's, uh, I know it's not fair to kick him while he's down, but it's just so goddamn hilarious, this old tweet. Quote, there is no cancel culture. The fastest way to get a book deal in this country is to whine about cancel culture. Every single one of these people ends up on their feet. They are fine. They have giant platforms. They are heard loud and clear. Right-doing options are everywhere. So, I look forward to Nathan Robinson's book. I'll enjoy reading it. Um, Okay, so general, general synopsis, and then we don't have to belabor this topic anymore. If we want to hold the bad right-wing actors accountable for using irony to mask really terrible intentions, when and where is it okay for the left to deploy those tactics? Sometimes the jokes don't land. Comedy is important, but we also need a one-size-fits-all rule. And so my, my feeling here is leave the jokes to the comedians if you're going to make those posts. I encourage you to do it, but you have to do it a lot more often to prevent the possibility of context collapse. People should be able to go to your account and see a whole bunch of crazy, silly, out-of-the-box, you know, lunatic political posts. But that being said, I think they were right to delete these things. It's okay when the joke doesn't land, and it should be left at that. And there should not be consequences afterwards if you voluntarily self-censor and realize that, uh, you know, your statement was interpreted the wrong way. Okay, let's, um, let's move on to our next topic here. There is a complete collapse of reality for Democrats and for Twitter users in general. So, excellent tweet here, history repeating itself. In 2018, they were outraged about Obama-era border conditions pictures, thinking they were taken under Trump. In 2021, they were excusing Trump-era border conditions pictures, thinking they were taken under Biden. People may remember, in 2018, there was one of the greatest, most delicious moments of irony, where an image went viral on Twitter, and it's showing a photograph of two children uh, laying on what looked like yoga mats or camping mattresses or something like this, and they're being held in a cage. It begins with John Favreau, is my recollection, but it makes its way through uh, a number of popular left Democrat-type uh, personalities. Sean King reposts it, a number of uh, political figures, politicians repost it. The article reads, First glimpse of immigrant children at holding facility. And they're saying, look at, look at how evil and uh, corrupt Trump is that he's holding these poor kids in cages. And, <laughs> oh, the sweet irony, uh, the photograph is actually from 2015, and it was under Obama. What this speaks to is the desires of certain political actors on social media to fit the world, to fit stories, to fit narratives to their ends, to take this decontextualized image and believe that it is the political violence carried out by Trump rather than the guy that they like. And (laughs) recently, there was a tweet that went around, quote, here's an actual photo of where the kids are kept. What this looks like is, I'm going to describe the image for people who are listening on the podcast. It looks like an elaborately decorated elementary school where there are both bunk beds, but there's children's art on the walls, there's flowers, there's banners, uh, it's carpeted, there's ample windows and daylight. It looks very comfortable. It looks like an elementary classroom. The following tweet says, 
Look at these quote cages for unaccompanied minors. <laughs> This is in February of 2021, and it turns out the picture is from the summer of July 19 under Trump. You can't make this shit up. You can, you can absolutely cannot make it up. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. In other news for political speech on social media, there is an array of new features that have been rolled out in the past month. My photograph of a child-sized Boogaloo Halloween costume was recently taken down from Instagram. I was not posting it in an uncritical fashion, although I guess I did financially support it because I bought the thing. Uh, but it raises it raises an interesting ethical dilemma where Instagram can judge something as being too radical and dangerous for the platform, but Amazon can literally profit off of it and ship it to my house. Or technically, my mom's basement. That's where I was living at the time. Additionally, there are various posts that are now accompanied with a disclaimer saying these materials may have been obtained through hacking or missing important context. The other thing that I think is very interesting. This is more so concerning. So allow me to introduce this piece. I'm going to pull up the video in a tab. I pause this, and I'll give a little bit of an introduction. So we've spent the last few years talking about the parameters of political debate online, how these things could potentially blow back and negatively affect the left. We've been breaking that down, speculating on a number of things, and one of the competing theses on this question is that left-wing political speech might be totally co-optable. That we don't actually need to defend it. What we need to combat. Are these infrastructural advantages of platform capitalism on behalf of the giant platform companies? So, if you're the last person to hear about this, Twitch is owned by Amazon, and if you have an Alabama IP address, you are being shown anti-unionization ads because the warehouse, the fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama, is trying to unionize right now. So, I haven't seen these yet. I'm not being paid by Twitch to show them, but I thought we would look through one and two. I believe there's two videos on this thread, and just give a fresh reaction. Let's dive in here.、Uh, excuse me if the volume is too loud. I'll adjust it as we start playing. We at the Birmingham team have a great leadership. We really don't need anyone coming in and telling us what they want to give us, because basically. We have everything we need here. Always wanted to work for Amazon. This is the only place I've seen that have benefits from day one. There's no waiting period. You got chances to advance. Vote no for the union. I will vote no. It's not needed. Vote no. We can do it without the dues. So relatively quick, it looks kind of nice. You know what it. Aesthetically reminds me of it reminds me of those fucking Instagram pastel infographic things of like why political organizing is bad and what you can do to help or <laughs> you know what I mean those types of things it's like a ten post a carousel of whatever and it's like and here's a, here's a breakdown of why you can't have healthcare okay there's a second ad here very much like hostage <laughs> hostage video vibes in some of these let's take a look at this video with David. Rep in Los Angeles at International Airport, and they don't do nothing but take your money. They just take your money, and they don't do anything for you.、And、I would keep what Amazon got. I love it. Yeah, I want to make my career here. I don't need the union. I'm gonna vote no. I think the union coming in here would be devastating. We're all one. Let's get it done. And I believe that's the end of the videos here. I hadn't seen them before. They're not as insidious. They're kind of like poorly done, to be totally honest. Margo in the chat says these anti-union videos always have a woman of color and a gay guy trash the unions. Any pro-union person is a cringy, skinny white guy in glasses. <laughs> the virgin unionist, the Chad, gay guy or woman of color. <laughs> could be, could be, yeah. 
Well, that is part of um, this. Is, this is dark and dystopian, right? But that is um, that is part of Amazon's internal analysis, right? That if there is too little diversity in a fulfillment center, that it uh, it is higher up on their priorities for risk of unionization. So those are those are wedges that are they are very effectively driving between their workforce, right? Right wing influencers stay consistent. In the same week that the super straight hashtag was circulating on social media, a few interesting things happened. Milo Yiannopoulos is now an ex-gay. He's, I guess, sending himself to conversion therapy and has demoted his live-in boyfriend to housemate. (laughs) That's fucking dark. Uh, Catboy Kami is also now dating a femboy. I'm very happy for them. Kami has certainly given us a few signs over the years. I'm glad that he is living his truth. The last I heard about him, he was under investigation from the Australian version of the FBI. There's that ASIO, Australian State Intelligence Organization or something like that. Um, And most of his stuff is scrubbed from social media now. Gypsy Crusader... Gypsy Crusader has been arrested for possession of a firearm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Definitely saw that one coming for quite a long while. Things seem to be coming apart at the seams for the dissident right influencers right now. Uh, It's not good. They are struggling to maintain relevance. They are having to perform more and more outrageous stunts to get views and clicks. And Gypsy Crusader similarly... He would do these series of live streams on Omegle. I believe that's the... It's essentially like chat roulette, basically. Maybe a little bit less horny. And he would like say really mean things and threaten people with a gun. But he also has a felony conviction, so he can't be in possession of a gun. So he's live streaming himself committing a crime. Let's see. Oh, okay. Most notably, Riley Williams. The one that got away. The one that got away. She has an interesting story. Now, that would be a great episode of my political journey, for sure. I don't have an age on this, but there was a lot of posting on poll about how she politically evolved over the years. And apparently in middle school, she was in a lesbian relationship. At age 17, she converted to Islam. It's very interesting. I think of Islam among these far-right communities is something like... uh, I've been calling it a hairpin issue, where people appear to be going one way, and then they double back and completely change their position. So you will very often find young GOP conservatives who are really anti-Islam, and then given sufficient time, allowed to radicalize, they become very pro-Islam. Like, oh yeah, we need something like American Sharia, especially on the extremist fringe. They are basically white people ISIS, right? Like Foyer Creek Division is white people ISIS. That uh, 16-year-old in the UK who was caught converting an antique firearm has gotten six months in in prison. H. Ward in the chat is saying, wasn't one of the Adamwaffen guys Muslim? Um, I don't necessarily know if it was from one of the Adamwaffen people, certainly O9A and a, a number of other groups that I'd prefer not to name, but... Yeah, yeah, they make, you know, you're a young Republican and you're like, we must defend the West or whatever. And then you realize like, oh, the West is actually controlled by the Zionists and we should be in solidarity with radical Islam. And um, okay, we're drifting. That's a digression. So around age 18, Riley leaves Islam. Who knows how serious of a commitment that was? And she converts to veganism. Those two are not really interchangeable by the way. It's not like, <laughs> but I guess it, it is a political identity nonetheless, right? And then she gets heavily involved in poll and uh, various similar radical far-right communities. There's a picture of her at the Capitol with Nick Fuentes. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about that channel, to talk about America First in general. What many people get wrong or confuse in their analysis of these young right-wing spaces is that they think everyone is some type of a violent extremist or what have you. And if you spend time in these communities, the most frequent conspiracy theory that you will encounter 
is that Nick Fuentes works for the CIA and is paid by the government to de-radicalize people and convince them that there is some type of a political or electoral solution to their grievances. It's important to differentiate those two groups because what America First is doing through projects like AFPAC, which was a conservative conference held this year in Orlando, they are trying to accumulate institutional legitimacy, present themselves as a serious political party, and I think that we should take them seriously. We should take them at their word because it's becoming something more than just an online influencer, something more than a broadcaster. America First is not going to be another Infowars or something like that. It is going to verge from a fringe internet movement and try to become uh, a serious group within the Republican Party. They talk about platforming America First Republicans. So as the dissident right influencers and internet personalities are disintegrating, (laughs) literally going to prison or being deprived of their visibility, what have you, what has codified in the last few years is this thing that is now quite serious, which is becoming more than a media organization and will soon become an insurgent electoral campaign within the Republican Party. And I say that I'm really just repeating the things that they talk about all the time. So this is not really my analysis. I'm just relaying the projects that they describe themselves getting up to. So tonight I wanted to present a work in progress essay. Maybe it's a blog post, something like this. I've been thinking about it for a while and we'll see how this goes. Maybe people in the live chat can give some feedback. In my analysis, DKP is market socialism. And I'll explain how I get to that. We'll also define what is DKP and what is market socialism. (laughs) One of the many reasons that I've always thought game spaces, fringe online spaces could work for the left is because when you do a structural analysis of in-game organizations, many many, but not all, are implicitly or explicitly socialist. And I think many gamers have been socialist and not known it. And that's potentially a very powerful seed to plant in these communities. So what I'm going to try and do tonight is offer a structural breakdown of the guild and offer an analysis of its political economy, which is DKP. Maybe a year and a half ago or so, uh, I was playing World of Warcraft Classic for, for quite a while. There's a superficial analysis of game spaces where because you can create an avatar, you can play with your race. You can be literally green or blue. You can play with gender identity. You could be um, a purple night elf girl, even if you're a white man in real life. All of that exists. That's somewhat interesting, but it's not, it's not necessarily new. Maybe the best precedent for taking these game economies seriously is if you go back uh, and you read the work of Giannis Varoufakis, who is the economist in residence at Valve and writing about uh, Team Fortress for a while. Game spaces are a contained environment. They have millions of actors. They are decent sometimes strong simulated realities to test out a theory in real time. So they're actually, they're actually quite good for creating economic models. The first thing we need to do is explain what the hell is a guild, just for the people who don't know. I'm sure there's 10 people who are not uh, gamer nerds, and they would appreciate an explanation of the guild. So let's define some of our terms here. What is a raid boss? A raid boss is a big guy... It's like a dragon or something, and he's got a lot of health, he does a lot of damage, and if you went and attacked this giant dragon, he would uh, murder you instantly. (laughs) There's no way that you could kill him on your own. To accomplish this, players form in-game organizations called guilds. And guilds can be many, many players. In the example of World of Warcraft Classic, we're talking about a formation of 40 people 
who all go in to the dragon's cave together and they kill the big dragon. But what becomes very interesting is that once you kill the dragon, he's going to drop your loot, you get access to his treasure, what have you. He doesn't drop enough treasure for everybody. He usually drops like four or five items or something like that. And uh, there's no way to split four or five items in 40 different ways. So the guild is tasked with the distribution of scarce resources among some nerd rage, edgy, uh, often shithead gamers. So it can get very complicated. So the guild is formed to engage in a productive activity, which is called killing raid bosses. And it requires governance in that it manages the fair distribution of scarce resources. And what is an interesting uh, case study, particularly for World of Warcraft, is that the game has been around for something like 15 years, 10 years, whatever it is. Um, There are millions and millions of case studies for the most politically stable and productive social formation. So within guilds, there are often disputes, there are beefs between players, and there's often conflict about who gets the most valuable items, and people often disagree about these things. They're also, uh, you know, frequently these gamers are uh, angry people who uh, are prone to nerd rage and rage quitting and um, yelling at each other and saying all types of unbelievably cruel things and, and what have you. And I think this is actually very important to emphasize because the, the great irony of this is that often over the last few years, people have said that these game spaces are too cruel they're too, they're too rude, they're too what have you, to ever really fold those people into a moral system like socialism, right? Like, the gamers are too hateful and vindictive to be brought into our political project. And I think it's important to emphasize that because the criticism actually cuts the other way in that if we can prove that the in-game organization is socialism, market socialism, granted, then that means the design of the system must be so good that it can withstand all of these volatile personalities. So important, important to emphasize. We'll go quickly through a few different types of governance within the guilds. Uh, We're going to talk specifically about DKP, but I want to acknowledge some of these alternate uh, uh, governance systems that are present in World of Warcraft Classic. There's the dictatorship or the monarchy, what have you, which is just one guild leader who decides everything. (laughs) Those guilds do not last very long. There is a system called Loot Council, which is essentially a representative democracy that is divided by role, where there will be a representative on behalf of the Druids, a representative on behalf of the Paladins, and they will have a debate in a private channel about where this particular item is most effectively utilized. So it's a representative democracy that is uh, technocratic in a certain type of way, aiming to increase the overall productivity, uh, but governed not really by mass democracy, but by uh, elected representatives. There's also another version of Loot Council, which is perhaps more communitarian. I'm not sure if that's the most robust description for it, but there is sometimes what uh, gamers will refer to as effort points, uh, which is that, let's say, for example, you know, Bob shows up every week to raid. He never misses a game. Uh, His damage output is not at the top. He's like, you know, he's, he's a decent competitor, but he's not like our best damage dealing rogue. But because he really puts in the effort and he helps to support the community and he's like a really fun guy and everybody likes him, we want to reward that social cohesion and incentivize Bomb to show up to the raids in the future. So we're going to give him this sword or this dagger, what have you, so that he comes back and he keeps coming back the next week, even though we could squeeze out a little bit more productivity if we gave that item to somebody else. But there's various weighted systems, and they want to take into account social cohesion. Okay, last two systems here. There are random rolls, which is essentially just dice rolling. This is similar to a lottery system or something like that. 
And there's another system, which is called Suicide Kings, which is um, essentially a queue. You're on an organ donor list. You need the next sword that drops, and then there's a, the rotating list. Once you get one, you go back down to the bottom. And then there is DKP. And DKP is far and away the most frequently utilized political system for guilds. And in my analysis, this is market socialism. We should differentiate here. There is the laissez-faire free market, and then there's market socialism. These are two very different things. Sometimes when people say market socialism, they mean Sweden. Sometimes they mean China. It's a very broad term, and I want to try and be particular when we use it. So I think the closest, most boiled-down description of this is that market socialism is cooperative production without a command economy, in that it uses price signals to determine the relative need, but does not allow for exchange value between commodities. That's a little bit abstract, so let's try and describe it in a little bit more detail here. DKP is an in-game currency within the guild. You earn points by time, by attendance, and by boss kills. So there is both a wage, but there are also reward incentives for performance, in that if you're going up against a hard boss all night, and you keep wiping, you keep dying... You're only earning DKP based on 15-minute increments or something like that. But if you're going, you're cruising through the dungeon and you're killing a lot of bosses, you're racking up both your hourly wage and you're also getting rewards based on the boss kills. So each player is a worker in the cooperative entity of the guild. Value is produced by a boss kill. This value is represented by the currency called DKP and it is paid out to all members equally. This internal guild currency is used to buy the items dropped by the raid bosses, and these are only available to purchase based on their use value. You can't buy them for resale. You can't buy them as a speculative investment. So let's emphasize this because it's very important. If you are a mage and there's an agility dagger that drops... You are not allowed to bid DKP on it and resell it as a store of value, as an investment, what have you. The only people who are allowed to bid on it are people who would benefit from the agility dagger, meaning that the goods are distributed based on their use value, not based on this exchange value. In this economic structure, the surplus value created by the guild in the form of boss kills, is given directly to the workers in that DKP is distributed to everyone who is present at the kill. Everyone who puts in labor is rewarded and given the full value that they produce. A true free market in the game space would look something like the auction house, where people are buying and selling goods for exchange value. Over the lifetime of a server, there is an inflationary effect In the beginning of the server, there's very little gold. At the end of the server, there is an overwhelming amount of gold because many people have leveled up. A lot of economic exchanges have happened. And what you will often see people do is they will stockpile goods that they expect to appreciate in value or purely serve as a store of value. They will, in some cases, literally buy bars of gold in the game because they hold their value better than the currency. The currency inflates over time. And these items are essentially financial assets. So there is, in the game space, a real free market, exchange value, what have you. But inside the guild, items are never bought for gold. If you kill the raid boss, no one is allowed to bid 500 gold, 1,000 gold, for that agility dagger. So what's interesting is that DKP feels like money. Although DKP feels like money, there is no way to rent DKP, and there's no way to charge interest. So, for example, Flip can't loan me 10 DKP, and I'll pay him back 12 at next week's raid. That doesn't exist. And if DKP cannot be rented, it cannot be invested, it cannot generate new value, that means it's not capital. 
It's money, but it's not capital. Capital is value in motion. But what DKP is very useful for is creating a price signal to determine the relative need of a certain item. So let's give an example here. Myself, Flip, and Matilda are all healers. I'm a priest, Matilda is a paladin, Flip is a druid, and there's a plus 60 healing mace that has just dropped, and we could all benefit from it. But how do we tell who would benefit the most from it, you know? In this example, I'm running a high intellect build, and uh, Matilda is running a high uh, wisdom build, and Flip is running a high plus healing build, and he could really benefit from it. So we've all been paid out DKP from killing the various raid bosses, from putting in our time, collecting our wages, and now the item is up for bids. I put in 25, the minimum bid, Matilda puts in 25, and Flip puts in 200, because he would really, really benefit from having this particular mace. Even though all of the healers might benefit from it, but Flip would benefit from it the most. So what we have created is essentially a workers' co-op that equally distributes the surplus value created, and that surplus value is then used as a currency to determine the relative need and create a price signal within the co-op. That's market socialism. You have all of the benefits of a market economy without the distorting effect of speculative investments. It's actually a more clean price signal than a free market capitalist economy. So, uh, big picture here. A lot of the analysis of edgy gamer spaces and what have you, there's a lot of talk about hierarchy and competition and Jordan Peterson dominance and whatever stupid nonsense. It's important to keep your eye on the prize in this analysis that a true free market, real capitalism in the game space would mean buying items in an exchange medium, aka gold, and selling them later. What DKP sounds like to me is from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And if you tell this to gamers, they will probably absolutely lose their shit. Uh, they'll tell you you're wrong and whatever. Uh, they're going to say, I'm you know, the strongest, I'm the best player, what have you. And then five minutes later, they will get into Discord and they'll say that it's not fair that all the loot this week was distributed to the people who already have too much, and that's why I'm going to quit the guild. So I think it's important to remove the stories and the narratives and the, the affective uh, things that, that orbit around these, these game spaces and really just get down to the brass tacks, to the, the economy, the economic structure, what is happening in here? How do they manage the distribution of scarce resources? It is in no way capitalist. It is market socialist. Let me conclude this by saying that I think that this type of politics is scalable. And it's important to know what we mean when we say socialism. Because if we do, we'll do a much better job of recruiting people to our side. Whereas... These gamer spaces uh, are recruiting people to the far right, and if one was to communicate to them that, hey, you've actually been operating in a socialist economy this whole time, you and all of your friends, and it's benefiting you and, and you're having a great time doing it, they might be much more amenable to our arguments. This is, I'm going to indulge myself for a little bit here, so... Um, we'll see how this goes. This might get, this might get cut from the podcast, but... Um, I think it's, it's an interesting contrast. If you look at these gamer spaces and you compare them to the art market, which is rhetorically the most progressive, the most radical, you know, revolutionary left-wing, uh, you know, that's ever existed. If you buy the argument that I just made, that these gamer spaces inside of World of Warcraft, that the guild is a cooperative entity, it's a worker's co-op, then what would an economic analysis of the art market reveal? What is rhetorically super progressive and left-wing? Because uh, it seems to me that the art dealers are taking 50% of the profits and the top seller of the gallery makes literally a million dollars, but there's no revenue share. 
Seems like the uh, gallery systems are more right wing than the gamers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing that is so and so infuriating about the fucking art world too. Because I've been at the bottom of it for for quite a while, but um, the art world is so ideologically neoliberal that it is not able to do the revenue share within its own gallery roster, right? That's where it gets really sick because a minimum investment in the lower tiers of the gallery roster would yield large profits later, right? But they have so thoroughly internalized the bootstrapping that, uh, uh, I mean, this literally happened to me. I had to get rid of my studio while <laughs> a lot of people, like, basically retired. Uh, so I've, I've learned it the hard way. For me, especially around watching the emergence of these right-wing gamer spaces and being incredibly downwardly mobile is a nice way of saying it, going bankrupt, essentially, in the art market and the, the value of my assets really crashing to a point that they'll never recover, right? Like, I'm never going to make a career as a commercial artist now. Uh, <laughs> certainly not after this channel, right? <laughs> um, but the contrast of those two things became very vivid to me because I thought there was potential in the game spaces that I grew up in. Like, I didn't, I couldn't explicitly make the argument that the game spaces were market socialist in the way that I tried to lay it out in this stream, but I knew that there was potential for left-wing politicization in the game spaces. And then I'm faced with the reality of this totally crazy free market, totally deregulated nightmare of the art world where I'm literally going broke and like I have a workplace injury on my foot and like it's really not working for me. And the, the contrast of those two things simultaneously have been present in my mind for, for quite a while. So I wanted to try and convey some of that tonight and hopefully in the edit for this podcast I will be able to condense and consolidate this uh, uh, quite a bit more so let's see closing notes for this um, quick update on my recent call for a Skillshare in the last podcast so many talented people came forward that um, I really had to scramble and I didn't exactly know what to do I'm very much interested in continuing that the one thing I'm, I'm worried about, I won't belabor this, uh, I've, I've said it a few times previously, but I'm, I'm worried about creating a quantitative analysis of left-wing political spaces and basically giving to Zuckerberg on a silver platter, like, here are the people you should shadow ban, you know? So what I'm interested to do and the conversation that is evolving thus far with the various researchers and data scientists that have come forward is that I want to isolate high conversion rate keywords that are in this network diagram one node away from political activation. So I want to find like what are the what are the terms, what are the memes, to use the to use the the lingo, what are the memes and ideas that circulate in these spaces for people who in this analysis are about to become politicized, maybe are about to vote, protest, join a party, whatever it happens to be, hopefully a little bit more than protest, that hasn't worked out so well this summer. Um, but I think through our qualitative analysis, we can get all of those memes and all of those terms and we can just feed it to the channels that we like. <laughs> and we can say, okay, if you do a video on this topic, if you talk about X, Y, Z, you'll get a, probably a smaller overall viewership, but your conversion rate will shoot up way higher. And that would be more effective than my previous uh, imagining or envisioning of this project, which was to publish essentially um, what are the common pathways to, to finding left ideas through Gen Z social media or, or what have you. That just seems to be like you're inadvertently fueling your, your competition. Twitch will play all of the anti-union ads on those channels, for example. Wrapping up the stream for tonight, or wrapping up the podcast record, I should say, Please join us in the Discord if you are a patron of the show. On the 21st, we will have art critic and tech critic Mike Pepe give a lecture about the 14 points of technology criticism, which I've had him give a number of times to my class at, at SVA and is always very generative and, and well-received. I want to close out here with a great quote 
from Inventing the Future. And I have to say that this book was really influential in the way that I started looking at political spaces online, started looking for a seed of optimism, if you will. What kind of escape vectors are even possible? And the conversation that I have tried to put forward, it's, it's exhausting. I, re- I feel like I, I just say these things on repeat. I've become evangel- an evangelist for this, um, for counter-messaging. But that's what you have to do. You just endlessly have to repeat yourself until, until somebody listens. But I've also tried to be very critical of the left and to not really give up any ground or play favorites. And part of convincing people to come over to our side has meant a, a really deep inventory of the current incarnation of the left and accepting some of these criticisms when they are apt. And this particular passage of Inventing the Future stuck out to me. So I'll leave us with this. The question that any analysis of the left today must grapple with is simply, what has gone wrong? It is undeniable that heightened repression by states and the increased power of corporations have played a significant role in weakening the power of the left. Still, it remains debatable whether the repression faced by workers, the precarity of the masses, and the power of capitalists is any greater than it was in the late 19th century. Workers then were still struggling for basic rights, often against states more than willing to use lethal violence against them. But whereas that period saw mass mobilization, general strikes, militant labor, and radical women's organizations, all achieving real and lasting successes, today is defined by their absence. The recent weakness of the left cannot simply be chalked up to increased state and capitalist repression. An honest reckoning must accept that problems also lie within the left. Maybe that's enough of a podcast and I can stop preaching for tonight. (laughs) 